alcohol. I though. think the last good glass of wine I had was with you when at your quasi farewell party. Really? We went. Well, we went to uh, Apia. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yes, we had good wine there. That's true. That was very good wine. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Anyway, let's kick anyway. off. Welcome to the plate up. My name is Ashan. Welcome to the plate up. My name is Sebastian. And we are the F&B podcast focusing on the hospitality industry, especially on hotels where we both work in currently. Um, welcome back to our show. Today, we're probably going to tackle a bit more of a serious topic right now. Um, and that is, I think right now, it's very obvious there's a lot of people that from front of house and back of house who have been furloughed or have lost their jobs completely. And Sebastian, I think I'll, I'll let you kick it off with the service side. If you're a person now that have lost their jobs or on unpaid leave or something like that, what should they be doing? That's yeah. It's a very um, real topic. Um, it's a heavy topic, and <laughs> it's a heavy topic. But I and think it's something that you know we need to tackle. Well, there's, uh, as always, a million ways to to look at this. But I think first and foremost, you need to be in the right state of mind. Um, I, that's very important because it affects what you do and how you do it. Um, so. The first thing is to understand that this is not our fault. It is completely outside of our control. And um, sadly, it has very real consequences for a lot of people. And so we have to be positive and, and try to overcome this as, as we always do and adapt to, to change. So you have to be in a, have a mindset of, okay, well, this, is, this happened. And now um, what can I do to get up and, and go on. Um, obviously, I would, I would say if you have time, especially if you're on unpaid leave, um, sharpening the knife is always a good thing. I think, um, yep. I mean, FNB people, we are very passionate. So there's always one area that we like to, more than another, or that we like to, to delve into. Like, I don't know, someone would like prefer beverages a bit more. Some will like wine, some will like food, some will like the art of, of the table and, and service. So there's now with the, with internet, there's pretty much everything available. Um, I think that the best part is to find on YouTube videos, to be honest, videos about specific topics and, and just keep learning and keep deepening the knowledge. And, uh, and in parallel, of course, uh, monitor the situation, monitor what's, what's happening with the regulations um, in terms of hygiene, uh, and I'm sure you will have a lot to say about this, uh, Hisham. But um, stay stay on top of of the industry and, and aware of what's happening and try to see in which direction it's going to go because one day restaurants will reopen in one way or another, in one form or another. And um, people will will need to hire a skilled workforce. And but Sebastian, can we do this for three, four months straight? Some people can, apparently. Mm -hmm. um, but any business is under a lot of strain for when you're when you're closed or where you have very little traffic for so long. So 
what can you do? It depends. You can again, you can also hone your skills by by trying to find. Not, I'm not going to say odd jobs, but opportunities for you to to make revenue uh, in by using your craft. I see a lot of sommeliers. They do um, online tastings, online uh, workshops, or online presentations about wine and, and different products, the wines they like. Uh, we see a lot of chefs now uh, making recipes at home. A lot of restaurants, a lot of hotels on Instagram posting recipes. Um, so to to stay uh, on top of the industry and to stay relevant and, and to stay um, present. What do you think? I have a few concerns. Um, I have a few different thing, different thoughts on this. First things first. I, my biggest fear is um, when things open up again. I think it's going to be very cutthroat. That's that's my first fear. And the f- probably the f- most important thing I will say, and it's very easy to sit behind a microphone and say this, but I think for me, know your worth. That's the first thing I will say. Mm. Um, yes. My biggest fear is that people will be undervalued. Like they'll undervalue themselves in the way of how much they're worth. So, you know, whether if you're getting X amount of dollars before, mm. you're happy to take a reduction to get now a different salary um, just because you want a job. Now, again, it's easy to sit here and say that. Mm. But I have a fear that small businesses or businesses will take advantage of this situation, right? And and it's it's twofold. It's 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 both sides. You know, I think if you're a business owner, a restaurant owner, whatever, uh, you're also going to be careful, right? So, yes. you know, if if somebody comes in saying, listen, I want $30 an hour, and then another guy comes in and says, listen, I'll, I'll work for you for 28 right? <laughs> you know. Uh, so is that a lot as a reference? Is that a lot? Is that not a lot, $28, $30 an I think hour? you're a small business owner. Let's, let's think about from a small business owner's point of view. If you're a small business owner, that's a lot because, you know, let's, let's take it. $2 saving an hour over eight hours over five days. Let's not go seven because you're two days off. Um, that's a, that, that ends up being a lot, especially in our industry. And if you're a freestanding restaurant, okay, let's not take hotels, but let's take freestanding restaurants where, you know, the margins are very small, $2 saving an hour, you'll happily take it. So I'm worried that there might be businesses that exploit this, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that's one of my fears. My okay. second fear is that restaurants and small businesses may uh, take, you know, qualifications may not mean the be-all and end-all. You know, mm-hmm. um, they use, you know, you, experience always helped and you know you could put your experience down in a resume and that would order you know it, it doesn't you know yes even if you did ask for a bit more salary you you had the experience to say well this is what i'm worth this is why i'm asking this much right i fear now people will just take whatever they can get 
right? And this is where I think, you know, um, if you have a, if you're a, all of a sudden you got Michelin star experience, um, you could easily be undercut from a guy that's happy to do it for less. Mm. Right? So that, that, that's, that's my first thing. So, so, okay. so that's it's so one that, is, is that, taking advantage and the second one is yeah. the dilution of so, skill requirements. Exactly. So that, that then leads into a second knock-on effect. So let's say you are a person that's got tons and tons of experience working in fine dining restaurants, right? Um, and I'm not just saying, you know, if you work in fine dining restaurants, you could be working, you know, in uh, you know, line chef, you could be cafe chef, it doesn't matter, right? My worry is that all of a sudden you take any work as a chef because mm. that's what you know. And all of a sudden now you're working in a job where you're earning half mm. or let's say, a, let's say a substantial less than what you used to earn before. And you're doing the same hard amount of hours. So you're doing the same amount of hours. You're still grinding like you did before, right? Mm. Let's be honest. Job satisfaction isn't going to be as high as it was before because, you know, before you're working in your, you know, your fine dining restaurant where you were learning and all of a sudden you may be doing something completely different. Mm. You're still in the same industry. But, you know, mentally that's not going to be easy. No, that's exactly. So that's where I say know your worth. And, and, I, and I, I know it's going to sound crazy, but I nearly say, and not just nearly say, I say take a break from the industry. Mm. Right. Look at other industries. Um, right now, you know, don't think, oh, I can't stack shelves. I used to stack shelves before I became a chef. Right. Um, don't think, oh, you know, I'm not going to work in a supermarket. I'm not going to work as a laborer. I'm not going to mm. work in construction. Right. Right now, I would. It'd be better to do something completely different. Right. Because then you, if you're doing something completely different, it's learning. You're still learning. Right. And as long as you're learning, and whether it's something that you're really 100% passionate or not, it, as long as you're learning, at least your brain's still in a decent frame of mind, right? Mm. If you're doing something that you really dislike, it, 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 it doesn't matter how much you try. It's not good for anyone. It's not going to help, right? So you might as well go and do something different. The industry is always going to be there. No one can take your skill away. Right, so whether you know if you've been a chef for fifty years, oh, okay, fifty. Let's be fifty, right? <laughs> if you've been a chef for ten, twenty years, working in really high end places, you're not gonna. If you leave the industry, no, you know, you're not gonna forget that. You, you're no, not gonna yeah. forget the skill, right? So, um, but you know, you know what they say: a change is good as a holiday, right? So, but, I honestly believe do something different if you have to right because don't put yourself in a toxic situation where all of a sudden you're working for some guy that you know you're just doing it for the money and you know let's be honest in our industry if you're doing it just for the money you're already one for that exactly yeah. right no you're one does our industry just for the money <laughs> right i mean you have to have some level of passion um, to be in this industry, that, that's where I begin on this. But so, okay, look outside of the industry and, and see if there's something. Take a break of the industry. Now, can you also? Do you think it applies also to look at something different within your industry? Like Definitely. I know, I know a lot of chefs 
Okay, they chefs, chefs and service people, F&B people, um, that work their whole life in one, like in, in hotels. That's what they do, hotels. They do, they have done since the first day of their career until the, the last one, it's, it was hotels, different brands, different countries, but always hotels. And you have people who uh, stay within F&B or as a chef, for example, stay as a chef, but finds his fulfillment, his happiness in, in many different jobs. So they, were, they might have worked in a, in a five-star hotel for a few years and then got a, a few promotions. Then they opened their own sandwich shop um, and then opened another restaurant with a partner and then maybe that didn't work out. So then they went to uh, catering and, or uh, private yachts or, cook, or in cooking in the army. I mean, there's so many different um, facets to, to our industry that you could also, it, it, as you said, if you work 20 years in, in fine dining, why don't you go and uh, and work in a smaller place or open? Okay, maybe now is not the best climate to to be entrepreneur and to be an entrepreneur and, and open something, but see something out of your comfort zone and out of your a hundred percent of your habit. A hundred percent. I think you know well, the worst thing about somewhat our industry is we become a bit snobbish into other facets of our industry. I mean, we True. spoke about this in the first episode where we said, you know, we always look at takeaway with its own, you know, we look at it from a distance, right? It's not fine. Exactly. <laughs> you, know, you know, yeah. So, you know, but this, this, this snobbishness or this arrogance that we have to other aspects of the industry, it has to, you, you need to get, make peace with that because, you know, how many, I mean, I know from our side, right? And I'll say it just from a chef's side. We, we used to always have this, and it's not a nice saying, but I remember as a junior chef, we used to say it. Like we used to say, and and, and you know, and an apologies to you know listeners because you know, obviously, when I was a junior chef, I had a very different way of thinking to where I'm now. We used to always look at chefs that used to teach, as we used to say, "Oh, these guys couldn't make it," right? But that you know that that kind of thinking back then, and and unfortunately, you know, some people never change; they don't mature from that kind of thinking, right? Mm. And and it has to because if you go into the te- you know our industry isn't just about knife to board. There is teaching. I do a lot of teaching now. I teach. I mean, okay, I don't sit in front of a classroom. I spend most of my time teaching my younger chefs. We all do it, you know. So it's those misconceptions we had back then, right? They need to finish. But you can't just say, well, you know, I'm only going to do fine dining because it's you're just you're making that box so small. Yeah. It's going to be such a small box that you fit yourself into, right? And the reality is cutting an onion in a fine dining restaurant may be different to cutting an onion in a cafe, but you still know how to cut an onion, right? Yeah. Opening a bottle of wine in, uh, in Jean Rubichon's wherever he is in France, right? And opening a bottle of wine in the cafe down in Bangna is pretty much the same. It's probably going to be a different quality of wine, right? Yes. <laughs> but it's, you still have the skill. So apply it, you know. But know your value. That's all I say. Know your value. Don't uh, just suddenly say, you know, and any job you take, don't just take it because, you know, this is the best I can get, mm-hmm. you know. And, and don't wait, you know, like I said, jobs will come up 
find something to do in between. Um, practice your skill. Practice your skill, right? Refresh and your I, skill. I, exactly, exactly. And I, I think it's it's such an important thing right now. Um, uh, you know, to come back to doing recipes online and things like that, right? I mean, we've started a podcast, right? Yes. We would have never started this podcast if this didn't really happen. Let's be honest. We were both very, very busy and we didn't have the time for it, right? Um, now we do. And now we're making conscious effort to find the time to make it going. And now it's, 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 it's up and going. But, you know, do these things, right? Look at, you know, unfortunately, I mean, there's a lot of chefs and a lot of waiters that because we're, you know, we all kind of think, oh, we can't do videos online. We can't do podcasts. I can't take photos. I can't take great photos of my food to promote. Mm, yeah. Learn it. Like you said, it's on YouTube, right? YouTube, you can find things online, how to take good photo, you know, food photography, how to start a podcast like we did, you know, how do you video yourself? Peter McKinnon does all these things, right? Go out there and, and find the time. You know, if people have time to bake bread, <laughs> you can find time to learn how to take photos of food, right? Yes. Because also building your resume now, right, you, you have to be a bit more multi-skilled now, I think to tell you the truth, especially in this world, you need to be a lot more more skilled. You can't just be, well, I only know how to do knife the board, right? You need to know, you know, you need to have, let's be honest, you need to have some kind of social media presence, right? Yeah, and that's actually, it's, it's very good that you mentioned this. And I think we should talk about this in, a, in an episode dedicated to this, uh, which is what, uh, what do we need to know to be efficient at our job? What are the skills that we need to be good chefs and good F&B service people or good F&B people overall in general? Um, and I think that's, that's something we can discuss because I, I believe we will definitely come with our own ideas. Um, but as you said, your soft skills, emotional intelligence, all of this is, it's not just about, as you said, if, can I cut up an onion or can I make a great sauce? It's all of the other things around it that make you a better person. Definitely. Mm. Definitely. And, and it, it's, uh, you know, whether it be the hotel industry, whether it be in the, you know, standalone restaurant industry, building your skill set, you know, and not locking yourself in. And, and actually, this is something we see more in Asia actually tell you the truth I, I i haven't seen it so much maybe i'm wrong you correct me on this right and, I, and i'm going to talk more from a chef point of view um it, you find a lot of chefs that are specialists right so mm -hmm. you know you have you and you find it more in asia you know you're a western chef you're a you know this guy's a thai chef this guy's a japanese he works in the japanese restaurant you're japanese a wok chef, chef. Right? you're a wok chef right and okay there are some things that are completely specialist skills. Like if you're a sushi chef, you're a sushi chef, right? And that's what you focus on, bang, right? When I was doing my trade skills back in Australia and, you know, we had to be a bit of everything, you know, we had to know how to cook a stir fry. So we need to have to, you know, we had to have basic Asian cooking knowledge. We had to know how to do pastry. So we had to have basic pastry knowledge. Um, and we had to know how to do, you know, of course, 
everything else, your grill sections and your pan sections. But did you go to a hospitality school or did you I go did, to I did, I did. I went to a culinary. college called, yeah, I went to a college called William Anglis, which is okay. uh, pretty much, I think now, seen as one of the best in Australia, if not the best in Australia. They, when I was uh, going through them, they only had the one campus in uh, Melbourne, but now they are global. They've got a few in China. They've got, oh, I think, good. one in Singapore. They're in Sri Lanka. Uh, they've got an offshoot in Vietnam. So they've expanded, um, and they're in the other states as well. So they're in the other. So it's not just Melbourne, Victoria. Now they're in Sydney and things like that. They... That kind of teaching helped me down the track to, uh, you know, so I had the confidence, like, you know, I can do pastry. I can do basic pastry. Mm. There are a lot of chefs that don't know how to do any basic pastry nowadays. And it's very important, you know, um, to know these things. It's very important to know how to do basic butchery because that's, that's, that's another skill that's completely gone by the wayside, by the way. You know, because, you know, nowadays, you know, I remember when I, even when I was a junior chef, you buy all your meats portion controlled and things like mm -hmm. that. So you you lose a school skill in butchery. Because, yes, because for efficiency's sake and just to, to explain a bit, in hotels for efficiency's sake, everything is pre-portioned or pre-measured, let's say. not so Pre-measured. Pre yeah. So pre you're buying a whole sirloin. You're not, okay, maybe you don't buy it cut up, but you buy it. Uh, whole. Actually, in Australia, we used to buy it completely cut up because if you take the labor out of it, if you take that, it takes, you know, if you take, you, let's look at the waste. You know, if you take a whole sirloin, by the time you trim it back, you clean it up, the waste that goes out. Um, it costs you more. It costs you more, right? Because you the labor. And, and, and the problem is, and that it costs you more because people don't know what to do with the leftovers. Yes. Right? So forget the fact that you've now burned some labor into it. You know, you've taken 15 minutes to clean it up and, okay, let's say, yeah, clean 15, 20 minutes to clean it up and trim it down and then portion it. Now you've got this trim. So forget the labor that's gone into it. Now you've got this trim. What do you do with it? A lot of chefs don't know what to do so with what it. What would be the yield of a, of a... It's, it's hard to say. It's hard to say. But it's all different. I remember there's a guy who wrote a book. I need to find this again. There's a guy who wrote a book with basically the yield of everything that you could find in a professional kitchen. It's called The Great okay. Book of Yield, I think. The <laughs> I Great Book. It. <laughs> like and uh, the guy has pretty much yielded everything. So the yield is, is the percentage of, of uh, produce you have left after you've cleaned and trimmed it. Uh, okay, okay. I mean, you, you would generally lose about if if you take everything like I don't know, I'd nearly say ten percent, fifteen, twenty percent that you might, you know, you might lose. be left with about eighty percent. You know, when you take out sinew, it, it like again depends on different cuts, different, you know, different cuts, different types of beef. You know, obviously, if it's a Wagyu, it's a bit different. If it's a low grade, you're going to have a lot more sinew. You may have a high fat content, you know. But then, like, all these things go into sausages and burgers in butcheries, right? So they, they love it. You know, you give you pay more for them to keep the trim. They take the trim and they turn into something else. Yes. So, so they're making a bit of money on, uh, on it anyway. Uh, so, I mean, again, we're, we're going 
deeper in this, but I, I like that topic because it, it branches out so many things. Like yeah. why why don't we do it in, in in hotels? Why don't why is it not an evidence? I mean as much as possible you try to organize your kitchen to have a menu that doesn't require you too much mise en place, too much prep. And that the, especially in a in a hotel you want as little ingredient as possible to to be able to use them in as many dishes as possible um, so that you don't have too much stock and you don't waste too much. Um, well, I've got a bit of a controversial th- view on that, Sebastian. I think the reason for it is because we want, in some countries, right, if you want a good steak in Mexico, how much are you paying? Like the cheapest here, because no, no. big portions. Let's forget cheapest. Let's go with. Oh, man, you can pay. Like if I you mean, went out have... for a steak, right? Let's say you're going out for a steak. How much are you expecting to pay? I would pay at least a thousand pesos, which is yeah, it's fifty bucks. Fifty least, bucks, at least. So Bangkok, what are we paying? About oh man, paying more. Yeah. If you go out to a restaurant, mind you, you guys can get you have a beef industry over there, so you know. Yeah, um, you're paying I mean, about a, 80, 90 bucks here. Yeah, yeah, eighty, ninety bucks right. easily in Bangkok. In Australia, generally, you're paying thirty-five, forty dollars mm. Australian dollars, mm. right? Now, how is anyone going to compete? You know, how are you going to compete with that? Yeah. It, it, the the countries. This is where I come back to. And it's it's a controversial topic, and you know maybe people will agree and people will disagree on this. But restaurants have to jack up their prices; <laughs> they do. Yeah, it's just the reality. You cannot sell good quality, expensive ingredients, right, mm. at cheap prices. And the way you're going to absorb that cheap price is by the labor that executes it, yes. and not the actual core ingredient. Mm. That that's that's where the problem is, you know. Uh, uh, in Thailand, it's a bit different because labor is quite cheap. And comparatively, yes. Comparatively, right? And you're importing all the ingredient in, so yes. y- your ingredient cost is quite high. Yeah. But people understand if you want a steak, you're not going to find a steak for cheap. No. You know. Well, it's important. Uh, well, good, a decent steak anyway. Because right? yeah. it's all it, it could be anything. It could be anything, and. Um, and and the problem back home is it's completely the opposite. And I'm going when I say home, I say Australia. Like you cannot uh, absorb the cost through the labour. You can't just say, well, you know, um, we don't want to increase our price because. And and the rea- and this can't be just one place. It has to be across the board. You know, people have to. The restaurant industry has to get together and say, you know what, from now on, we we can't. We we have to put the prices up because and because. The consumer isn't ready to pay for it either. The consumer wants to pay as less as possible, naturally, mm. for the best quality product. But the reality is that, the, you know, we're not talking about a Ferrari versus a Ford Mondeo, right? Mm. Yes, they both do the exact same thing, <laughs> right, um, at completely different qualities, uh, you know, um, where you're paying completely different pricings and one's a luxury item and one's not, you know. We're, we're we're not talking about luxury goods here. We're talking about you know the 
people need to decide. People, you know, consumer needs to be aware that you know when you're buying a steak, you know, and this whole thirty percent, thirty two percent food cost and beverage costs, right? It's a bit of nonsense, you know. It, it's just numbers, right? You know, um, obviously I mean, we're not there to rip off the customer, but you know, we're, we're not ripping off the customer, but instead we're taking out of the team's pocket. You know, okay. That's so yeah, you're, you're, that's, you're, that's my passionate rant on this. Hmm. Well, raise the price so you can raise the salaries also of everyone involved. Well, of course, of course. Of course, and and but that's across the board. They need to kind of you know, and you know what the problem is. You know what we do raise our prices on silly things, club sandwiches, Caesar salads. And you you would see the price of certain, well, those some of these classics in certain hotels, and you're thinking, my God, how, why, for what, why, first of all, and then how, and but if it's still there, it means people buy it. Who is eating a club sandwich that's when you're not in a hotel? I don't know. Good question. I don't. I know. I, I think clubs. about it and I'm a tired already. <laughs> you know how many steps are involved in making a club sandwich? Well, yes. There is a lot. And, and you know why I dislike club sandwiches? And, and we're going to get off sidetrack here, but this is a great story. When I was a junior, when I was a first-year apprentice, a second-year apprentice, right, I worked at uh, this place called Hilton uh, Hilton, at Hilton Melbourne Airport. It's not yeah. the Hilton Melbourne Airport now. It's Pullman at the uh, Park, Park Royal at the airport is called now. But um, I was a young larder chef, so I worked in the cold section. And the cold section meant you have to look after uh, the salads, the sandwiches, the entrees, and the desserts. Okay. And being an airport hotel, we used to get hit for these club sandwiches. And I remember, so, you know, when you get the, when we didn't have a toaster, or we, mm. we, so what you had was a salamander grill. So yeah. when the club sandwich order come in, the cold, the section, the guy in the cold section would have to take three pieces of bread, put it on the salamander, right? <laughs> and then uh, while that's happening, he'd get his, you know, lettuce, tomato. Uh, we used a bit of smoked turkey over there. So, okay. um, you know, uh, lettuce, tomato, smoked turkey together. And, um, yeah, he'd get that together and uh, cheese. Actually, we used to put cheese in there as well back then, right? Hmm. Now, while that was happening, the guy on the grill section, he would cook also a hot chicken breast. So we used to put yeah. chicken breast and smoked turkey. Hot chicken breast. He'd fry an egg and he would grill the bacon, right? And you know those little pizza trays? These are yeah. so what we call my pizza trays. These are little metallic trays um, which are designed to be you make many pizzas in, but hotels love to use them as trays to put anything on, right? Because yeah. you can put it in the oven, you can cook your steaks on it and then take it out. So he would then stack it all, and, you know, he'd put the chicken, the, ba- the bacon, and the egg on top of this, and then he'd bring it to my section and just put it down. And just drop it on the pass. Drop, drop it on the pass. On the, right? on the workstation. Now, when you start getting hit for this, right, forget the fact that you forget that the toast is under the salamander. Yes. And because you're trying to do it fast, you pull the salamander grill as close to the element as possible, and if you miss it, all of a sudden, you have the, to start the, over. the entire, and we're an open kitchen, the entire restaurant smells A, burnt toast, <laughs> B, see smoke pouring out of the cold section, and it's all staring at this one guy over there who's running around manic, right? 
But on top of this, I've got this guy on the grill, grill section. I won't say his name, but this guy would just bring another tray and then another tray. And at one point, I had like 15 trays stacked up of bacon, eggs, and um, <laughs> and, and chicken, the, right? The chicken breast. And I, I, I mean, that was, again, PTSD. <laughs> when I see a club sandwich, when I see a club sandwich, I just it always triggers this memory of this nightmare club sandwich experience I had. Right now, and you know it only takes one service. It takes one service. True, true. And it comes back to what we're talking about. Forever. Exactly. <laughs> comes back to what we were talking about the other day about. Um, you know, the, all these heroes, the nurses and yes. doctors all out there, you know, going through these horrible situations. And if, you know, if I had to come back to these business services. I would, I would like, think about it. <laughs> I would think about it, you know. I would, I would consider my options, I said, I think. <laughs> <laughs> i tell you what, it's just club sandwiches. But, I mean, I know, I know we got off track there, but. That's okay. Now, staying on the club sandwiches, um, you know, when we go to other hotels and, and other restaurants, we are the worst um, because we always look at every single possible detail and we criticize everything. Um, so I heard a long time ago somewhere, uh, someone said to me that an old school GM, he knew whenever he would go to uh, another hotel, he would always order a few classics to kind of test the quality of the, the property or the establishment where he was. Um, and those three classics were the club sandwich, uh, fries, because fries, he wanted to see if the oil was clean. And that would, uh, that would give um, indication on the cleanliness and the hygiene of the kitchen. And at the bar, an Irish coffee. Really? Because the Irish coffee is, is an item that is in every, I don't know, someone one day wrote an on, uh, like a, a commandment and said in every five-star hotel on your bar menu, you need to have an Irish whiskey. It's like it's, you can't not have it. Okay. And this, this drink, no one orders it. Like in my career, I think I've made two. And one of them was for myself. <laughs> the other one was probably for a, a customer who asked for one and I had to look up the recipe and that's what happens is that because it's a drink it's not super complicated and we, we can give the recipe either in the description or, or we can talk about it in another episode mm -hmm. but it's just one of these old school classics and, and people when you ask a, a bartender why don't you make me an Irish coffee It will take 15 minutes, for sure, because at the first seven minutes, he is looking, he's on Wikipedia trying to find out the recipe. And then for another four minutes, he's running around trying to find cream and uh, Irish whiskey, probably because he doesn't have it behind his bar. And uh, yeah, and then the actual, the last three minutes is him actually making it. And maybe he, ma he makes two. <laughs> the first one doesn't end up that well, so he makes a second one. And then you get... Kind of an Irish coffee. Now, okay, mind you, there are there are establishments and hotels and restaurants who have made the Irish the Irish coffee an institution, so they do it properly. Of course, but uh, I'm I'm talking about the the, the really the, the the most common five star hotel or even luxury hotel brand 
they will have Irish coffee in their in their menu for sure. Yeah, and and but you know, but this GM, what was he trying mm. to gain out of this? Though? No, it's again, you know, it's we are as you said, we are sometimes a bit snobbish, or we <laughs> we all have very high standards and expectations and and also an understanding of what is luxury or what are things that are well done. And we always want to, and it's also reassuring. The classics are classics for a reason, right? Because you always know what you're going to expect. And so for hotels, uh, one of the the secrets of of luxury, not secrets, but one of the commandments of luxury is, is consistency. And the classics are, are a perfect test of consistency. The same with a bartender, a daiquiri or um, a Collins drink or an old fashioned or uh, yeah, you have slight variations in, in classic recipes of classic cocktails. But ultimately, it's, it's the technique also that's behind the drink, right? There's a certain, can you uh, stir a drink properly or can you shake a drink properly? Uh, that says more than the recipe. And, and so these classics are a good judge of, well, of, of consistency. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I can see the method in the madness. Mm. I'm not sure if I'd be judging an entire business based on their club sandwich. And, you know, it's like, it's near like judging an airline purely on the bread roll they use in the economy class. Right? You don't do that? I, <laughs> I mean, there are other factors that, you know, when you say they're classics for a reason, they're classics that are dying away, let's be honest. and, and uh, I'm not sure I agree with you. No? You don't? No. I think, why, it's, why I think it's a cycle. Um, they, Do you honestly think the club sand is going to come back. Yeah, obviously I you can see how much I hate the club in sandwich. In 50 years, uh, we will still be eating club sandwiches. No. You've heard it no here way. first. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> the, I, I can tell you now, you go up to any millennial and ask them, have they eaten a club sandwich? They're going to say no. And you can't tell me that. There's too many in carbs. Years, too you know many how years. little carbs people get into nowadays? In 10 years, people will have forgotten about gluten-free. There will be no gluten. And in, in 10 years, one guy is going to look at old school sandwich recipes. He's going to say, oh, God, the club sandwich. Yes. And they're going to, they're going to market it and they're going to, it's going to work again. And people are going to remember it. And it's in their DNA. You know, the crazy thing is we, even we may have one just to reminisce. Ah, oh, you know, we'll be sitting. I might wake up tomorrow. We'll be sitting in some time. institution somewhere, old and senile, <laughs> and they'll be, be like, "Can we have the club?" You know, they'll be like, "Oh, this week's special. They have a club sandwich." We'll be like, "Hang on, I haven't had a club sandwich since twenty-five years." <laughs> exactly. That's it. Um, I I agree with you. I, I don't know. I I think we have a differing opinion on that. I think classics are eventually on the way out i i really don't believe that some um, cocktails there are some classics that are never going to go away drinks drinks is a different deal Sebastian. Okay. drinks stay in fashion let's be honest i mean i i agree okay it's funny that you you know i i kind of mocked this person that used to do this but i uh, be honest uh, when i think about it, i nearly do the exact same thing because 
what do I order every bar I go to as my first drink? <laughs> the margarita, right? Always. I, I always order a margarita because and I so like If you have a terrible margarita, what happens to you? Well, it gives me a very good opinion on what the rest of it's going to be like. Mm. Right? So, of course, yes, you start judging on what that business is going to be. But you can't put a margarita and a club sandwich in the same category because I'm pretty certain that any bar, like if you take a bar in a restaurant that has a margarita on their menu and a club sandwich on the menu, the margarita would be outselling the club sandwich 10 to 1, <laughs> if even if it is 10 to 1. I'd bring I, a give lot you, more. I give you a date for 50 years and let's look at the numbers, 50 years. <laughs> uh, yeah, um, I, I speaking of that, speaking of classics, um, we, we so for those who are listening to us, we out offline we always discuss about we always talk. I mean, we talk very often to each other. Hishan is in is in Bangkok uh, at the moment. He's living there and working there. For those who don't know, and, and I'm living in Mexico on the west coast. So we have twelve hours between. We have us. twelve hours, and um, we we talk and, and we talk about the the episodes, the podcasts, and what we want to talk about the topics. And funnily enough, uh, many times when I come up with a topic or Heshan comes up with a topic, we find out that it's something we've been thinking about. Like Heshan is the kind of guy that I could call in four months, and I haven't spoken to Heshan in four months. And I will I will talk to him about this random thing I have seen on internet. Ninety nine point nine percent of the time, Heshan has seen it as well. That's and pretty close, I think. Um. So today he he mentioned about one of the classics, which is not food or beverages, but equipment, copper pots. And I have been playing with the purchase button on Amazon for a while now. <laughs> but uh, I'm very okay. So copper pots are cooking pots um, that copper are pots, either entirely in copper. Or um, with the outside in copper and the inside, um, tin. It's tin. Mm. So, do you know why? Tell me. But before you before you explain more in detail, what I wanted to say is that for me, obviously, whenever I look at a product, and that's a curse of, of my industry, maybe or, or my department, F and B, um, I want the best. Uh, of course, I will go for the best. And um, for me, the best is Movier. Moviel is this company in France who's been doing copper pots for years and years and years and years. They are in, a, I think their factory is in a city called Ville-Dieu-les-Poils, uh, which if you translate it literally, it means uh, the God city of pots. <laughs> the city of gods, uh, Ville-Dieu-les-Poils, the God city of, of pots. And um, it's, it is where they have the last uh, church bell foundry so that whole city is still very um, very much into the the industry of, of making pots and, and bells and all kinds of equipment so Moviel for me is the best and, and I've been playing for a long time with Amazon to see if I was going to buy it or not so it's funny that you, you came up with that <laughs> well the, okay first reason the reason they put tin in um, the inside. copper pots in the inside is because if you put 
if you notice, copper can go green. Yes. Right? Um, it's a chemical reaction with the, with the temperature. Yeah, right? yeah. With, with, no, with acid. With the acid, okay. Yeah. So if you put like a um, bit of vinegar in a pot and mm. just, you know, leave it overnight uh, on, a, on just straight copper, it will start ripping into um, the the copper itself. So that's why the old school pots and pans where they didn't really put tin, they just took copper. Mm. Um, you see that. And copper pots, um, uh, they're copper on the out, obviously they're copper on the outside, they're tin on the inside, so you don't get this chemical reaction, right? The and handle usually is cast iron, right? Cast iron, because cast iron is generally a pretty bad conductor of heat. Well, it's a slow conductor of heat. Yes, it's great to cook on, because once it's hot, it's hot, right? It's, it's hot, hot everywhere. The surface distribution, <laughs> the heat distribution is very good on a, on exactly, a cast iron but, it, but, you know, as opposed to if it's on a handle, by the time the heat comes up to the handle and works its way down, it's going to take a while. Um, now, copper pots, like... Other things like Riddell glasses, right? Now, think Riddell glasses. Actually, I think maybe five, ten years ago, I would have said, you know what, a glass is a glass, right? After actually learning that each glass can make a glass of wine taste completely different, like you know, um, and and in a good way, not in a bad way, right? So if you use a wrong glass for a wrong the wrong glass for the a particular type of wine, it tastes mm-hmm. different. I'm sure you can. Agree with me on that. That's Let, let's be know. honest. When your dishwasher is also full, is full with all of your wine glasses, then a glass is a glass when you need a glass of wine. It's <laughs> a very good point. Right now, <laughs> let's be honest. But that's yes, I would a always... pot, however, yes. Other than the fact that you get excellent heat, right? It, it, you know, you put it on the stove, bang, it's hot. Mm. So it heats up quickly. It heats up quickly. Who needs this at home? Right? Um, industry, yes. If you're in a fine dining restaurant where you need instant heat, yes, right? I remember when I was a junior chef. Like, you know, you see Jamie Oliver flogging his uh, line of cookware and then you yes. see Gordon Ramsay's got his line of cookware and all this stuff, right? I used to remember – I can't remember the place right now to, to the life of me – but we used to buy these pans for work from this yes. industry supplier, right? These and these pans used to cost ten, twenty dollars. Okay, not ten, probably twenty dollars, twenty dollars, thirty dollars, right? Australian and, dollars as well. Yeah, but, but that's I mean the Moviel are not cheap, huh? The copper pots. Of course not, right? No, I, I don't think so. So but I'm talking about these just normal work pans. Ah, right? okay. You're talking about the normal ones. Okay, sorry. No, I'm talking about normal pans. These things would last us easily. Two, three years. And now imagine two, three years, these things are running every day. Yeah. Every yeah. day. Right? And every you pay year. twenty, thirty dollars for it. Mm. Then you go and look at the copper pot pot. Mm. And you go, the amount of money I spend on this. Am I, you know, it's more of a status symbol. It's the Hermes of <laughs> of copper pots, all right? Of of cookware. Right. I see. Is it you know, could you find something that does exactly the same? Yes. A garbage bag, or not a garbage bag, a shopping bag does the same thing an Hermes bag does, right? Mm. Uh, you know, one of these 
formed metal pans that come from Amazon or AliExpress does the exact same thing a cocker pot does, right? Are you going to They don't look as good. Of course not, right? <laughs> and it doesn't look as good. You hang it on your, on your well, I want to say rafters, but it's not a rafter. Um, you hang it off your ceiling and it looks mm. excellent. Um, but is it worth them? I mean, we're talking, I think sometimes these pots, these small pots, they're about four, five hundred dollars Am I right? How much are you looking at these pots for? What's no, the I, thought I was looking at, uh, well, actually, you know what? I can check it right now. Uh, there is so a, while um, you look it up, uh, while you check that out, I, I, what I've noticed is that, yes, if you're looking at from an industry point of view and you need instant heat, right, yes, and, you know, you get heat, heat everywhere. So we're not talking about like, you know, normal fry pans, you get heat from the outside in and you might have some cold spots. A copper pot just gets hot across the board. So you've got instant heat. But that also means you need to know how to control that heat. Not mm. everyone knows how to do it, you know. Um, and other than copper fry pans, who really needs a copper stock pot at home? No one. Or no a, one's copper, making... a copper jam pot. <laughs> I saw a guy flogging cocker, but cocker, <laughs> terrible, copper fish kettle. And I'm thinking... Yeah. Who is cooking fish in a fish kettle still? Okay, there you may do it once or twice, but you're not doing it all the time, you know. So, so I'm looking at a five-piece set. Oh. Okay, beautiful copper, tin inside, cast iron handle, and when I say, okay, disclaimer: five pieces is three pots, no, two pots, one pan, and two covers. That's the five Two covers. Lids. Okay. Two lids. Um, it's 25,000 pesos, which is around 1,000 US dollars. There you go. Right. And, you know, yes, you're going to love cooking in them, right, because you've got this instant heat. But if you can, listen, if you can afford it, go for it. If I had a thousand dollars to buy a uh, cookware, pots, you would do it. I'm sure. I wouldn't buy copper pots. I'd probably buy a lot of other things like fry pans and grill pans and things like that. Because for me, I know. I mean, I know how to control the heat. I know, you know, whether the pan gets hot in thirty seconds or one minute. Right, I can still work with it. I know how to do it. Um. Of course, it looks nice, and you know, if you had your own house, yeah, definitely. But you know, it, it is. Uh, but I need to say one clear thing: there's a lot of labor that goes into these copper pots. So you know, they're not expensive. They're just being, yeah, they're all every single one's handmade. You cannot form a copper pot. You can't just uh, put it in a machine and you know shape it out. You actually need roughly about two people to hand roll. A copper pot. You might sometimes see like these little ribs that run down the sides of copper pots. That's because they're hand rolled, and and they last forever. You know, you're going to hand them to your kids. You know, your kids yeah. may hand them. To their kids. Well, they say it's and the old pots that they make the best soups, right? And that was probably a copper pot. Yeah, yeah. Here because in Mexico, that, that's and- where those things have it. Like if you're making a soup and you're sautéing your onions. And, and your mirepoix and all, you know, that's going to constantly stay hot. Like, it's not like, you know, what classic usual pots, you put, you know, heavy bottom pans. And that's why you have these heavy bottom pans because to replicate the, to control the heat, you put your onions in, 
bang, you're sauteing away. You put your carrots in, all of a sudden the, the, the temperature drops in your pan. You put your celery in, it drops your pan a little bit. Uh, the temperature mm. drops again in the in on the bottom. Copper doesn't; it, the heat just comes back instantly, and you're nice and sauteing away. So, yes, you save some time, and you, you know if you look at it from that point of view. Yes, don't get me wrong. If someone said, "Listen, I'm giving you copper pots," I am not going to say no. I'll take it. <laughs> I'll take it. You know, but here uh, in Mexico, there is um, in Michoacan, which is another it's a region of, of Mexico. They have a big copper. Um, yeah, actually, I was going to say industry. that part of the world does have a lot of copper. And so they make these big uh, copper pots that are very white with handles on the side. It looks a bit like a jam uh, pot, to be honest. And they are used to, to cook uh, carnitas. Carnitas, it's, uh, um, yes. it's one kind of taco, and it's made with the pork uh, that is chopped. Um, and it has the skin, it has the nose, it has all, I mean, everyone has his own recipe of, of different pieces of, of the pork, but, uh, the particular thing is that it's cooked in pork fat, uh, which they call manteca here. So these uh, pots, because they get hot very quickly, uh, they have these wooden, the traditional one is, is wooden, obviously some do it with gas. Um, they have a stove with a big uh, opening and they place the pot there and they put all the, the pork fat, the liquid pork fat, uh, to bring it to a boil. And it, it goes very quickly and it stays hot for a long, long time. So they can fry big, big quantities of, of pork meat until it's, it really falls apart and it becomes almost minced. That's carnitas. You know what? The next episode, we're going to talk about Mexican food. <laughs> no, no, I'm serious. You're going to have to explain to me because I'm a little bit ignorant and I just think Mexican food is all tacos, right? And burritos. I, I'm learning every day. Um, and you're going to have to educate us on this because, unfortunately, a lot of people confuse Mexican food and Tex-Mex. Yes. Um, I would so have been a culprit a while ago. Um, so it'd be great to for you to fill us sure. all in on that. Let's do that. I'll do, I'll okay. do some research. Yes, and um, I'll come up with with some good things to talk about. And if you have questions, let's uh, let's bring them up as well. Definitely, Sebastian. Great. By the way, we uh, exciting days. We are on iTunes now. Yes, wonderful. We we are there. So if you're listening to us on iTunes, welcome. Um, if you got to this far, thank you. Um, thank you for listening. Thank you for listening. Please send us your feedback. There is a little link on the bottom where you can actually give us verbal feedback or just send us a message. Um, we are on Instagram, YouTube, iTunes, and Spotify right now. So uh, please let us know. But thank you for joining us once again on the Plate Up. Thank you to everyone. And um, we hope you look forward to the next episode. Yes, we certainly do. See you next week. Yep. Be safe, be strong. Be safe. Have a good one. Have a good one. Thanks for the memories. <laughs> <laughs>